E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Anastasia Pernton. I'm the Associate Director of the Partnership for Public Education. I'll be the host for today's episode of the E4E podcast, which was produced by Sarah Daniels, a graduate student in the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. On this episode of the E4E podcast, we chat with Dr. Ken Shores, Ariel Lentz, and Dr. Bart Gill. Ken Shores is an assistant professor specializing in education policy in the School of Education at the University of Delaware. His research is focused on educational inequality and encompasses both descriptive and causal inference. He addresses racial and ethnic and socioeconomic inequality in test scores, school disciplinary policy, classification systems, and school resources. Ariel Lentz is a second-year PhD student in the Education Statistics and Research Methods Program at the University of Delaware's School of Education. And Bart Gill is an Agricultural Science Education Associate for the Delaware Department of Education. He oversees all agricultural education programs in the state, as well as the transportation, distribution, and logistics programs. Bart is responsible for assisting to advance agricultural education through improving curriculum and assessment. Today, Ken, Ariel, and Bart discuss their research on post-secondary educational and employment outcomes for students involved in Delaware's secondary career and technical education programs. Bart will also provide an overview of Delaware's CTE program, its practical effects for Delaware students, and describe the research needs of the Delaware Department of Education surrounding concentrator designations. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Sure. So I'd like if you could maybe provide a little bit of a brief overview of Delaware's CTE program. Sure. So in Delaware, we offer all 16 career clusters that are across the nation in career technical education. And through those 16 career clusters, we have 31 of our school districts or LEAs that are offering at least one CTE program of study. And that's the stats from the school year 22. And when you look at some additional stats for Delaware and our students, we do have over 71% of the students in both middle school and high school across the state are taking at least one CTE course in their time in the middle school and high school. And then that breaks down to that 73% of our high school students and 68% of our middle school students are taking at least one CTE course. So we have a very robust career and technical education system here in the state of Delaware. That equates to over 120 different CTE programs of study, and those are separated out into our state model programs and our local model programs. And the difference between the two of them are basically who developed those programs of study. The state model programs of study were developed through the Department of Education in partnership with our teachers in our school districts, whereas the local model programs were developed by our districts and our teachers alone without DOE leading that process. And we provided parameters for those programs of study, but they ultimately took it upon themselves to create those local model programs of study for their districts that they felt they needed to offer and provide the opportunity for their students. And so career and technical education in Delaware is flourishing very well. And as we look into what we're doing, you know, one of our major focuses here at the Department of Education 
um, within our CT and STEM work group is equity. And so we're starting to look at everything we do through an equity lens to make sure that our students are getting the same opportunities, regardless of the subpopulation group that they're part of, and regardless of the background that they come from and their home life and all that. So we want to make sure that these opportunities are offered to all students on an equal level and that they have the same opportunities, no matter their background or their circumstances that they have outside of the school district. And so it is something that we have taken on as a work group to really focus our attention on that equity piece and also including a huge portion of student voice is a new thing that we're starting to make sure that we're being very diligent about including into all of our work so that the students that are actually benefiting from these programs of study and actually involved in these programs of study are having the opportunity to have their voice heard and that we are getting their feedback to inform our practice and inform the initiatives that we do in the state of Delaware. And so that's kind of the general overview of what we have. When you look at our statistics, we are balanced on the gender side pretty well, where we have about 47% of our students are female and about 52% are male. So when you talk about the gender side of it, they are fairly balanced in the state of Delaware, which is very promising for us on the equity side of things when it comes to gender. And then you look further into that with our other ethnicities, and we really haven't taken a lot of time recently, and that's where Ariel and Ken come in, to really dig into the subpopulations and how they are separated out and how they compare to the demographics within each school district and across the state. And so as we talk more in this podcast, we will have, that'll come up again as some of the future work that we need to do and that we need to focus our attention on so that we can really hit that equity piece and make sure that we're, we know where we stand when it comes to equity within the state of Delaware and career and technical education. Could you describe what a CTE concentrator is and why it's important? Absolutely. A CTE concentrator is any student that has taken two courses in a sequence for a program of study within career and technical education. And so any student that is in a program of study and has completed a level one and level two course would be considered a concentrator within career and technical education. Concentrator status is what the federal government and federal USDOE uses to for our accountability purposes. And so when you look at our Perkins core indicators, most of our cohorts that are not that are students that are currently in school are based on the concentrator status. So our academic side of it, so our ELA, our math, and our science accountability and performance level indicators are all based off of that junior cohort that would be concentrators. So any junior that has two courses in CTE would be included in those cohorts that are counted towards our accountability on the federal side of it. And so that is where the purpose of the concentrator comes into play because it is under the federal guidelines when it comes to our accountability. And that's how they identify our numbers within our accountability system. I'll also add that there's a good bit of research out there that says concentration status is important because it shows that students who concentrate have better outcomes when it comes to graduating from high school, getting jobs, and having higher pay jobs after high school, and that these outcomes are particularly better for students who have disabilities that concentrate and also students from historically marginalized backgrounds that concentrate. Thanks, Ariel. Bart, so I'm wondering, what is the Delaware Department of Education looking to do in terms of 
centralizing concentrator designations. Why does Delaware DOE want to centralize it? So with centralizing our concentrator designation, we're looking at automating our reports, a report that shows which students qualify to be concentrators or classified as concentrators. And by doing so, we're taking our enrollment data straight out of the eSchool system, which is where all the students' information is and their grades are entered, their master schedule is done. We're pulling that enrollment data directly out of the eSchool data that has all the students' information in it because that is the most accurate set of data that we have because schools are required to enter their students in the master schedules in eSchool in addition to entering their grades in there because that's what determines their graduation status. And so we have taken that data and created reports that identify students who have had those courses in a sequence, had had the two courses in a sequence to designate them as a concentrator. And by doing so, we found that that is a more valid and accurate way of identifying our concentrators. And so when you talk about why is it important that we do the centralization of the designation of concentrators, it really has made sure that we are accurate in our reporting for the concentrators versus the self-reporting from the districts that was happening prior to us automating that information directly out of the enrollment data. And so as we look through, and I know Ken and Ariel can talk a little bit more about what they found on that, but we did find that there was some over-reporting, under-reporting, and there were some students who were getting missed whenever they were doing the self-reporting from the LEA because LEAs have a lot of data and they it's really difficult for them when they have to do manual entry into it all. And it's just another step in the process. And we all know that when you're talking about data entry and data transcription, you lose validity the more that data is handled. And so by us taking that information directly out of the eSchool system, we're eliminating one step and one time that that data is handled and taking it directly from the source. And so we have found that our data is more accurate whenever we take and do and automate those reports as we move forward. So that's why centralizing the concentration designation has definitely helped us with our validity and our data. So how did the research team respond to this need? How have concentrators been identified using course data? Yeah, so this actually kind of came up organically. The project is really trying to understand who is a concentrator and what effects of being designated a concentrator have on their labor market outcomes. That, that's really the research goal. And so to do this, we need to know who the concentrators are. And so in part because of COVID, but also because of the Delaware State Department of Ed taking over the LEA reporting, what we were noticing is that on the LEA reported concentrator designations in 2021, they were really low compared to the prior years. And so we just raised this as a question to BART early on in the study and said, hey, what's going on for 2021? And they let us know that there was this kind of policy change where LEAs were sort of being released of this responsibility to report themselves. And so then as we broached this subject, uh, Luke Ryan, who was uh, working in Delaware at the time, he pointed out that this could be like an interesting policy question because it there are really interesting equity ideas embedded in this question about whether or not certain student subgroups are getting differentially designated by a concentrator status. And so we took this as kind of a task A to just generate the data we need to do the main work of the study, but then also to ask this research question that we hadn't even considered before, which is whether or not certain student groups are being systematically misclassified 
So this is really kind of like an organic question that came from the collaboration and one that we wouldn't have even thought to ask unless we had been working with Bard and Luke and John Wickard at the time. So prior to the dissemination of these research results, what was Delaware Department of Education's understanding of how concentrator participation looked like across schools and student characteristics? So we were suspecting that our concentrator data was, you know, fairly accurate as for what was being reported. We did suspect a little bit that there were students being missed and that not all students were being included that needed to be included. And so that's why we started doing some of the automated stuff, because we realized there were some course coding issues that were taking place at the district level. And we didn't really have a strong handle on when it comes to the subpopulations of our students and who's a concentrator, who wasn't a concentrator. We had the data, but we hadn't been taking a lot of time to really analyze that data to really paint the picture. And so as we started to automate and centralize the concentration status, that really helped us to start drilling down to some of the demographics and to start paying attention to those demographics to really start painting a picture of where do we stand on the equity side of things. And so to Ken's point, you know, that Luke brought up as we were doing that, it, it evolved into additional research questions and additional things for Ariel and Ken to really look into to see if there was any kind of trends there based on the self-reporting versus the automated side of it. And there were a few things that were identified. I don't know that they can talk a little more about it, but I don't know that there was anything earth shattering or major red flags in there. But there were a few minor things that have popped up that was of a little bit of a concern for us to really start looking into even deeper as to why that might be the case in the situations of students being missed within the concentration status in the subpopulations and their their groups and everything like that. So it's definitely something that we didn't really have a strong preconceived notion because we were trusting that the LEAs were being accurate with their data and we were having to put a lot of trust in the, the districts. But then as Ken and Ariel started to really dig into the data, they realized that there was definitely a difference between the self-reporting versus the automated side of identifying our concentrators. So that was confirmation to us that by doing the centralization of those concentrators will make our data more accurate in the end. Yeah. Ariel, would you mind starting our conversation about your results? Yeah. So when we compared the centralized method of determining concentration status that Bart described earlier to the district reports of concentration status, we found that there was agreement in which students should be a concentrator a majority of the time, or about 84%. This left what we considered a modest amount of misclassification across the state, where 16% of students were incorrectly identified in their CTE participation. So breaking this number down, we saw that about 11% of students were exaggerated as a concentrator, which means that they received the distinction of being a concentrator, even though their course-taking behavior that we analyzed didn't show evidence that they should have received that distinction. More consequentially, we saw that about 5% of students were missed as being a concentrator, which means that we saw in their course-taking behavior that they should have been a concentrator, but for whatever reason, the district did not grant the student this distinction. And just a small side, Bar, this is kind of to your point about some of the work that you all had done initially to make the comparison. We sort of broke things down into four groups. We said the LEA and our reporting both showed that they were concentrators, the LEA and our 
course-based reporting showed that they weren't, they kind of agreed in that they weren't concentrators. And then we had these two other categories that the LEA missed it. The course record suggested that the student should have been classified. And then the other version is that they kind of exaggerated their status, that the course records didn't indicate that they should be, but the LEA is saying that they are. And so if you only look at the total percentage of the population that is a concentrator, you would see a 90% agreement because the, the missed and the exaggerated kind of cancel each other out. So what we're able to do in the analysis is kind of like break that down and show that it's actually a little bit worse than you would think if you were only looking at the total population levels. And so, you know, we wouldn't have thought to do that without talking to our partners in the Department of Ed, but it kind of is nice to show that you get, I think, from my point of view, a sort of like a fresh perspective on how to think about the data and you get results that you wouldn't have thought otherwise. So the other piece that Ariel was kind of explaining to us, the, the overall rates. So the other question that we're interested in is whether or not students are being systematically misclassified because that could be evidence of some kind of inequity in the system. Overall, we agree with Bart that there isn't a lot of evidence that districts are systematically misreporting classification status by student subgroups. Oftentimes, these differences in whether a student is being misclassified or not are no more than one or two percentage points, which you could really think are just kind of accidents that, you know, students that are just not getting picked up for whatever reason. I think that probably is is the clearest and, and most succinct summary of our results is that some student groups are more likely to get misclassified, but never more than one or two percentage points. So Bart, I'm interested to hear about the department's reaction to these results and if they had expected them. Yeah. And when we learned this information, it was definitely a big relief to us to know that there is only a modest amount of disagreement there or a modest amount of students being missed. Obviously, we don't want any students missed and we want to make sure that they're all getting the credit that they deserve for their efforts. But it was definitely a relief to hear that there isn't a major issue there that we have to address overall. And obviously, there's still work to be done when you look at our demographics across the board for our subpopulation groups to make sure that we're those students all have available access to the programming at all the districts and things. But when it comes to the students that are already enrolled and participating in our CTE programs, it appears that the districts are doing a good job of recording those students and making sure that they're not missing those students. And so it was definitely a relief to see that that is one less thing that we have to really focus our attention on so that we can start focusing our attention on other pieces of the puzzle that have been uncovered as Ken and Ariel start really digging into the data. So Bart, one thing we've been kind of wondering about is for the students that have been missed, I think that's kind of an obvious group of students that we all agree should be attended to. Because if you look at the course records, they took two courses, they passed the courses, they should get that status. That's like an unambiguous issue that can be resolved and it's easy to fix. You just look at the course records and do it. But for the students that the LEA has reported should be designated as a concentrator, but the course records don't show that. These are the groups that we call exaggerated. There we thought it was actually maybe not as clear that centralizing this process is better because in a way like the LEA might know something about the students that we don't see in the data. For example, they might have courses that they took out of state that they bring with them to the school and the school saw their transcripts and knows that that they have the credits, but we don't see it in the data because we only have Delaware credits. And so have you guys thought at all about like whether or not you want to take a hybrid approach that you'll use course records to count everybody you can, 
but then like LEAs can report additional students that they think should be classified as one based on their own internal information. Yeah, and we actually have a hybrid system set up, Ken. So there yeah. is a user-defined screen on, in the East Coast system that allows districts to go in and designate a student as a concentrator that may not show up on our centralized list because we do provide that list to them at the end of the school year that says these are the students that are showing up as a concentrator and a completer in our system based on our centralized report. And then if the student does not show up in one of those lists, then they can go into the eSchool user-defined screen and identify that student as a concentrator or completer. And so whenever we run our total data and our data folks create our cohort list for our accountability, they're taking both the user-defined screen out of eSchool and comparing it to our centralized list and making sure that every student that is on both of those lists are included in that cohort. So there is a system there to make sure that we are counting all of those students. That's interesting. And so uh, do they have to supply any like supplemental information about the student or they just nope. click that this is a name? Yep, this is we're taking their word for it on that one, because exactly what you just said, they have knowledge that we don't have. And so we have to give them the ability to add to our list to make sure that every student is counted, because we do have some students who transfer from one school to another. And they've taken an intro course in one program of study, but the new school doesn't offer that program of study. So they started up in a different program of study there at the new school. And they're still counted as a concentrator, even though it may not be in the same program of study, they're still technically counted as a concentrator under the federal definition. And so the districts can go into the eSchool screen and put that student in and mark them as a concentrator or completer based on their coursework that they've taken in their entire middle school and high school career. Cool. Thanks, Brian. Absolutely. So to circle back to Ariel's initial point and thinking about how being a concentrator translates to college outcomes and labor market outcomes, what was the Delaware Department of Education's understanding of the outcomes associated with concentrator status? What research questions is DOE interested in now? So to address the first part of your question when it comes to translating to college outcomes and labor market outcomes, we would always hope that our students are taking what they learn at the high school level in that program of study and then applying it whenever they reach, whenever they go out into employment, into the industry or into post-secondary, that they're following through. You know, one thing I look at and my personal thoughts on that is even if a student realizes that in high school, that that program of study in that area of interest is not one that they want to pursue as a career, that's a win. You know, we ultimately would love to see every student complete a program of study at the high school level and then go straight into employment or go into post-secondary in that same area of focus. But we also know that these young people aren't necessarily committed to that program of study in high school, that that's the career that they want to be in. And I feel like that's a win, even if they realize that's not for them. And so... The concentrator status translating into that, we would hope that they are going and pursuing that career area, but we know the reality that that's not 100% of the case. And so that was some data that when you talk about what are the research questions that we're interested in, we would love to be able to have that longitudinal data and follow the students along after graduation and be able to connect them back to their high school program of study to really get a picture of how many students are continuing after high school in the same program of study that they program of study area that they completed at the high school level? So that's one of the big questions. And also then how successful are they? Has that influenced their 
ability to be successful in that area by having this skill set that they learned at the high school level, because it is a very concentrated skill set. And how does that help them move forward in post-secondary education or in employment after graduation? Did you want to add about how the research team linked concentrator data to out-of-school outcomes? Yeah, for sure. So we have two processes for this. We get college-level data from a data-sharing agreement that the state has with the National Student Clearinghouse. And the National Student Clearinghouse has a record of students based on whether they're attending a two- or four-year college, whether they're attending a college in or out of state. And so that's the primary outcome that we use to look at whether or not they're in college or not. For labor market stuff, it's a bit more complicated, and we actually haven't gotten the labor market outcome data yet. That's our big goal for this year. And what we're going to do there, ideally, is do a tripartite agreement between the Department of Ed, uh, the Department of Health and Social Services, and the Department of Labor. And so the Department of Labor has student information, but it only has their social security number. And the Department of Ed does not have a lot of social security numbers for students. And so DHSS is kind of this middle ground data source that has student ID numbers and social security numbers. And so they will allow us to kind of obtain the wage level data from the Department of Labor using this this kind of crosswalk, the data crosswalk that they have. And so when we can get the Department of Labor wage data, what we'll be able to do is say for a student who graduated from high school in Delaware, if they are working in Delaware, what is their wage and what is their occupational status? And we should be able to do that for a good chunk of students. We're kind of cautiously optimistic that maybe three-fourths of students will be able to get that information for. And so that's going to be the main descriptive result is to try to understand what is the wage, the actual observed wage for students who are concentrators relative to students who are not, and also to look to see whether or not students who have certain programs of study are actually obtaining the wages that they were supposed to obtain based on their pathway that they chose or the program that they chose. So those are the kind of like two main data sources that we're going to be using to to get this outcome information. But all we have from from an analysis standpoint right now is looking at their college outcomes. And Ariel, you were going to uh, talk a little bit about some of those outcomes. Yes. So when looking at the data, we saw that students who concentrate are more likely to attend a two-year college and less likely to attend a four-year college as compared to students who didn't concentrate. And this aligned with some of the research that's out there about concentrators' college-going behaviors. When we broke it out by student subgroups, so different students, races, and ethnicities, and also the different special programs they participate in, we saw that across all subgroups, concentrators are still between 9 and 12 percentage points more likely to attend a two-year college. When it comes to four-year college-going behaviors, we saw that when breaking it out into subgroups, students who are Black or African-American, students who are low income, and students who will participate in special education are between one and five percentage points more likely to attend a four-year college, but all other student subgroups were less likely to attend a four-year college. So Bart, we presented these results at the Pathways Conference early in the summer or in the fall. So I think what we're seeing basically is that students who are concentrators are more likely to go to a two-year college, and students who are not concentrators are more likely to go to a four-year college. And this is true even when you don't control for test scores, but also true when you do control for test scores. Is this like the desired policy outcome, or how would you all like to think of the data? Like, how does the state of Delaware think about fitness? Like, 
I'm a concentrator and I go to a two-year college. Is that a good outcome? Or do we think that that student might have gone to a two-year college because they became a concentrator, but they really should have gone to a four-year college? So how does the state think about whether or not students are matriculating into higher ed in the way that would be optimal in some way? There's not really an ideal outcome because it depends on the student. You know, So hearing the data that you guys talked about with students going into a two-year college, more concentrators going into a two-year college, I'm not surprised by that for multiple reasons. A big one being that we have a lot of articulation agreements with Dell Tech. So the students are getting a lot of Dell Tech credit through our programs of study because Dell Tech is an amazing partner with us. When it comes to the four-year institutions, it's a little bit harder for us to get those articulations or as many articulations in place at the four-year institutions. And we do have it in some program study, but not all. And so that's one of the things that I would suspect is, you know, driving a little bit of that that outcome of students going to a two-year institution. Plus in the state of Delaware with the seed program, you know, it's really advantageous for students to go to Dell Tech Mm -hmm. for the first two years and then go into those four-year colleges and finish out their degrees. This is something, I don't know how much I should be worried about it, but so my brother's like a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering whether or not you have a student who they're through high school and they have kind of an, an engineering track. Like they take on mm-hmm. STEM classes, they're mathematically savvy, but then they take some CTE classes because, you know, they're encouraged and they, you, as you said, 70% of students take at least one class. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is great. I like in- electrical work. I can get a two-year degree and start earning money sooner. I don't have to go through five years of college. Is that kind of an outcome? Like, does the state still consider that a good outcome? Or is that an outcome that they would try to use, say, you know, the guidance counselors in the school to to try to steer certain kinds of students into the four-year pathway versus the two-year pathway? So when we look at student success, we're looking at all students' future plans as they go into employment. And whether that is the path that they go into entry-level employment straight out of graduation or whether they go on for post-secondary education, all of it is a success to us. Any student that is gainfully employed and is making a livable wage after high school graduation, that is a win on the side of career and technical education in the state of Delaware. We're not looking to push students to four-year degrees all the time because not every student is designed to go into a four-year degree program. Not every occupation needs a student to go into a four-year degree program. You know, we have the apprenticeship programs in the state and the adult ed programs that are hosted by our technical districts with Newcastle County, Botech, Polytech, and Sussex Tech. And they do a great job of preparing students to really go out and be successful. You know, we have a ton of students who are coming out of those programs as certified plumbers, certified electricians, certified masons, all of that. And they're making a very good wage. And so just because they didn't go on to that four-year degree doesn't mean that their post-secondary endeavors weren't highly successful for them because they're coming out with a lot less debt and making a salary that is very equivalent or higher than a student that went through a four-year program in certain concentration areas, you know, content areas. And so for us, any student that goes, that graduates high school and can be gainfully employed and making a livable wage is a success for us. And whether that includes post-secondary education or whether that includes entry-level position directly out of graduation, all of it is successful to us as long as that student is successful in their career and can advance in the future in what they do. Thank you. That's super helpful. I appreciate that. 
So Bart, to that point, what does DOE plan to do with this information? So our hopes is that we can take the information and really start as a work group, start digging into what Ken and Ariel have surfaced to us as for some of the trends and some of the differences between subpopulations, as well as just the trends that have evolved out of the data that they are looking at. We really hope to take that data, look at it as a work group, really start to identify if there are any equity issues across the board, and then go from there to develop a strategic plan to address those equity issues and disparities that might be present. And that's really where we're looking forward to taking this data in the future is really to inform our equity practices, which then will inform how we develop programs of study and how we support our districts so our students have equitable access across the board for all subpopulations and all students at all levels. And so that's really what we hope to do with the results of this research that Ariel and Ken are working on. And could you talk a little bit about the challenges that remain in linking this data to outcomes? Yeah, so it's really the same problem that I got at earlier. The state of Delaware for the Department of Ed side tends to have what is like, it's called like a master ID. It's it's a random number that they assign to a student. And for us to look to see what wage data are out there, The Department of Labor doesn't have those markers. They use the social security number for the student. And so what we need to do is kind of make a bridge that allows us to connect these student ID numbers to their social security number and then merge those data to the Department of Labor. And the Department of Ed doesn't want students' social security numbers for lots of reasons, like a super high-risk data set just to keep. And so I think we have a plan for doing this, but we have to get a few things figured out before we go there. The other challenge here is that, you know, Delaware is a fairly small state and it's really closely located to other large metropolitan areas. So for a student that graduates high school in Delaware, even goes to college in Delaware, but then goes to work in Philadelphia or anywhere else in this kind of commuting zone, the Delaware Department of Labor, of course, doesn't have wage information for people working in Philly. And so what we also want to do is try to leverage some other data systems. One's called the State Wage Interchange System which will allow us to get out-of-state wage data for students who've graduated. To my knowledge, this is like an idea in theory, but one that hasn't really been tried before, not even by other researchers. This is kind of like a new area. And so how much actual data we're going to be able to get from this Swiss system, we don't know yet, but that will be a big challenge for us because we want to be able to talk about wage earners that are not just in the state of Delaware. That's really interesting. So my last question is, what makes for a good collaboration with the Delaware Department of Education? What research questions are most pressing to DOE in the CTE space? The collaboration piece, it's definitely, you know, having people that have a similar passion to uncover some of the things that uh, with our data and our enrollment and our students and, you know, the ultimate, having that same focus that we want student success. And how we define student success, you know, we really want to base that off of what we're currently seeing in the trends with our students post-graduation, as well as during their high school career. But really looking at that collaboration piece, you know, it's that clear communication across the board as to what is desirable and how do we define success for a student so that when we work with Ken and Ariel that they understand kind of how we're defining that and what we're really interested in as for the data to show us 
and paint the picture and show that longitudinal type data. You know, to Ken's point, we can't wait to see that data, to see that wage trends and things of our students that are coming out as concentrators and completers out of our programs. Like, where do they ultimately end up? How successful are they when you talk about success based on wage? You know, that's some of the questions that are very interesting that that we at DOE are very interested in learning so that we can start defining a little bit more of what success looks like for our students post-graduation. But when you talk about our data and the research questions that we're looking at when it comes to our students that are still in high school and that are working through their program study, we're really interested in looking at those subpopulation groups and our numbers and making sure that, again, I know I've said it multiple times in this podcast, but you know, equity is a big one for us. So really taking that data and really drilling down to paint the picture of equity when it comes to our program study within Delaware. And by taking that and by painting that picture, then we can really start adjusting our policy and adjusting our procedures to address any of the disparities that might show up. And so we ultimately, you know, would love to have our CTE populations and our student enrollment data and demographics, we really want to make sure that they're mirroring what the school district's population is. There should not be a program of study that, you know, doesn't include a subpopulation group at a level that is close to what the school district has in their demographic enrollment, because that's a problem. Why is that subgroup not enrolling in that program of study? And why is that not of interest to that subpopulation group? You know, those are like the things that we're really interested in looking at and drilling down to whenever we start looking at the results from what Ariel and Ken are doing, because ultimately we haven't taken the time in the past to really analyze that to a level that we can paint a picture of equity across the board within the CTE programs in the state of Delaware. Yeah, just to build on that, you know, like one practical thing that we can do is, you know, we can take a look at a school. And say, okay, this school has two students who have similar eighth grade test scores. So they kind of take a similar type of student, one student's male, one student's female, or one student's, you know, black, another one's white or Hispanic. And what we can look to see is whether or not those two students who look kind of similar in their test scores, whether they have very different wages or occupational employment when they graduate. And you can imagine that there are going to be some schools where students who have similar academic preparation they have similar types of outcomes in the labor market. Like there's kind of this translation piece where they're, they're sort of getting the same amount of reward for their abilities. And you can imagine other schools where students who are similarly abled in terms of their test scores have very different outcomes. And we don't get to say why that's happening. Like we don't get to speak to it. What we get to do is shine a light on what might be happening. But what we think is really neat about it is that then we can use this flashlight that we've kind of provided Department of Ed and they can start doing some more digging and, and we can potentially support that kind of digging as well to figure out what's going on in those schools that are doing a great job. Do they have guidance counselors that are really engaged in CTE preparation? Do they have teachers? Do they have principals that are kind of advertising these high wage outcomes? So all of this kind of like soft touch stuff that helps some students navigate this world and, and makes it so that other students are less able to navigate it. We can hopefully try to shine a light on, on those good practices to inform policy. And I think what's really nice about Delaware is that it is, as I said earlier, kind of a small state. So we have this like little bubble. And so we can do work that shines light and they can take that information and use it pretty quickly. So the line of communication is pretty short. Like we have like a good connection 
And I think we're all on the same page in terms of what we want to see. And so that that makes this collaboration really fun and exciting and feels impactful. Yeah. And to add to Ken's comments there, you know, ultimately looking at the bigger picture, if we can really narrow down and find ways to identify these trends and any disparities and things, we would hope that other states will be able to model after what we do, both at the Department of Education and with what Ariel and Ken are doing with taking the data and, you know, digging down into those areas that Ken mentioned. And so ultimately, you know, we have been known as a leader in career and technical education across the nation the last five to 10 years. And we want to remain as one of the leaders in career and technical education and reform and all that. And so that's one of the things that we're excited about having this data and being able to look at this data to really drill down. And the ultimate goal is to do exactly what Ken just said, you know, identify the schools that are doing wonderful things and really identify those best practices that they're doing so that we can then communicate that to other districts, not only in the state of Delaware, but across the nation to say, you know, these are some things that this school district is doing and we can highlight that school district because their students are being highly successful during their high school career as well as beyond graduation. And so that is the bigger picture of it all. But first and foremost, we need to focus on our students here in Delaware and make sure that we're doing justice for the students here in Delaware first. And then the hopes is that that will matriculate out to the rest of the country to really see that we did these things and were able to identify these areas that inform practice moving forward within the districts. That's wonderful and and really exciting work. So before we end this episode, I'd just like to ask, are there any resources that you'd like to point folks to? Yeah, we have the Delaware Pathways website, which is the DelawarePathways.org. And on that website, we have all the information that really highlights our current programs of study in the state of Delaware. And it is organized to really direct for all students, educators, and partners, such as their parents. And the website is designed to make sure that the information is all there so that parents and students can make an informed decision about the direction and the program study that they would like to be involved in whenever they get into high school. Great. And that will be listed in the episode description as well. And we will have a couple reports posted on the PPE website in the coming months, which when those get posted, people to take a look at them and, and see what we've written. Thank you all for being here and for sharing your findings and the impact those findings are having and also just this wonderful partnership. So thank you again for being here. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate you giving us an opportunity to showcase some of the great things that CTE is doing, as well as this great partnership that we have with University of Delaware. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu ppe.